Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Hey everybody, just a quick update. I'm in the process of raising funds for this show. Again, we've raised about $558 so far, which is just incredible. I'm really thankful for all of your help. We've still got about $22,000 to raise to fund a year of this being my full-time job. So I'm going to keep the fundraiser going for a little while longer. I'm hoping to start approaching small groups in my area to see if they'd be willing to help. So it looks like this might be a bit of a process, but that's okay. I'm excited to take even baby steps forward. If you'd like to help make Truce more sustainable so I can stop working so many hours between my full-time job and this, that would be amazing. It really would be incredible to get into a 40-hour week schedule. It would mean more in-depth episodes for you, better audience engagement, and hopefully a better rested host. You can support Truce via Venmo at at Podcast or on Patreon, PayPal, or check through the website at trucepodcast.com donate. I'll also have links in your show notes to this episode as well. Okay, here goes. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism up through the Scopes Monkey Trial. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 5. Did you find it? No, I gotta go online. Yeah. Right now I got no service. Yeah, I got no service either. Our story today took me on a journey with my dad. It's a windy day in Dubois, Wyoming. Gray, overcast skies, perfect temperature, and we're at the National Museum of Military Vehicles, about to head in, take you on a brief tour. Dubois is a small town known for its bighorn sheep exhibit, beautiful red rock formations, and a large jackalope statue slash gift shop. But recently, it became home to this giant private collection. Boats, trucks, and lots and lots of tanks assembled by one rich guy, Dan Starks. By the way, they ask that I stipulate that everything you heard today is my opinion and does not reflect that of the National Museum of military vehicles. We went inside, got our tickets, and walked through this big circular door. Standing inside of a bank vault, of all places. A bank vault full of weapons, some of them super valuable. And the thing I'm staring at is a display that features a gun that belonged to Private John Simpson. He was 26 years old when he fired the gun. And you may never have heard of Simpson, but he was the guy who fired the first shot at Bunker Hill with this musket. You may remember the order he was given in 1775. Don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes. There were cases with lots and lots of guns. Guns with stories. On display in front of us is a gun from 1890, Wyatt Earp's Colt single-action army pistol. Just right here, Dubois, Wyoming. We wandered around the displays inside this darkened bank vault studying guns that were hundreds of years old. 
looking for something specific. So we just walked around the corner here from the American Revolution section, some really interesting stuff about uh, Butch Cassidy, and now we've entered the realm of the machine guns and the Great War, World War I. Around the corner of the display case, everything changed. And you can notice the difference right away. Much larger guns, bigger magazines. Suddenly there were these big, heavy guns capable of massive carnage. I'll have pictures on the website. Honestly, that's an intimidating corner to come around. <laughs> because it was like going from one era into a whole new one. All of these weapons you might see in a western where the cowboy's robbing the stagecoach to implements of war, including one that looked like a big telescope. Yeah, there's, there's a machine gun with a, a hose coming out of it into a box, a green box that says chest water MI. And it's water-cooled. Because imagine a gun firing that many bullets. It would get super hot. A U.S. Browning model 1917 machine gun, manufactured by Westinghouse. The plaque says, This effective, reliable, water-cooled weapon served as the standard U.S. heavy machine gun from late 1917 through the early years of World War II. That's why we were there, to witness this change in technology for ourselves. World War I pushed mechanized warfare forward by leaps and bounds, taking us from small handheld weapons that might kill a few men to these heavy-duty monsters. Machine guns had been in works for decades and used in the Boer War, but not to this degree. I mean, you could just imagine the transition from that sort of gentlemanly, let's stand in a straight line and fire at each other kind of war to somebody's got a gun like this aimed at you and could just mow down a dozen guys in seconds. The kind of horror that this kind of thing would bring. I mean, it's scary just to stand here and look at this thing. <laughs> it's intimidating. In the late 1800s, guys like Teddy Roosevelt relished war. They championed it as a way for men to prove themselves. Social Darwinism making the world better on the backs of people who were, quote-unquote, less civilized. That changed with World War I. The introduction of poison gas, machine guns, heavy artillery, and airplanes. Warfare so traumatic that men brought it home with them in the form of PTSD, what was then known as shell shock. Over 116,000 Americans died. Half of all Frenchmen aged 20 to 32 at the start of the war were dead by the end. More than 21 million wounded globally, many of whom lived the rest of their lives with their injuries. They called it the war to end all wars, which we know it wasn't. Instead, it pushed American Christians to a darker view of the future. Still, there was one Christian man determined to keep us from the horrors of World War I. You guessed it, William Jennings Bryan. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. Wow. Well, that's going to put two boys on the map. Yep. All right. Let's let's go to dinner. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's lots of ground to cover today. 
I think most of us have a general idea of how the war started. But just in case, here's a quick refresher. This was the age of imperialism, late 1800s, early 1900s. Not just the United States with Puerto Rico and the Philippines, or Britain, France, Belgium, and Spain. All of the major world powers had colonies and territories, including the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They had their paws in places like Bosnia, but Bosnia didn't like that. They wanted to be part of Serbia, So a Serbian terrorist group assassinates Archduke Franz Ferdinand. This, you'd think, would cause maybe a small conflict. Just Serbia and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. No. Because there were all of these treaties involved. One nation said to another, If anybody picks on you, they'll have to answer to me. I'll stand up for you. But this didn't happen just once. It happened a bunch of times. One nation joins the war, so another has to. And then another. Like a row of dominoes. One falls, and the rest of them go down too. The Austro-Hungarian Empire declares war on Serbia. Russia is Serbia's ally, so they join the fight. Germany sides with the Austro-Hungarians. France and Russia are buddies, so Germany declares war on France. Britain, France, and Belgium are chums, so now they're all at war. It's 1914. And the United States stays out of it for nearly three whole years. Now, guess who was partially responsible for that? That's right, William Jennings Bryan, future Mr. Fundamentalist, previous three-time Democratic candidate for president. Now, I've been talking about him for months, and he never became president, but he was Secretary of State under President Woodrow Wilson. Now, it's worth examining that relationship. Wilson had been a more conservative Democrat. But, you know, Wilson saw which way the wind was blowing, and he realized that, that uh, he was, if he was going to get elected president in a party that Brian had done a lot to help shape, he was going to have to be a progressive, have to be a reformer, have to be on the side of organized labor, have to be on the side of uh, those who wanted to bust up the trusts, have to be on the side of those who wanted more flexible money supply. All things Brian led the charge on. He set the agenda for the Democrats for decades. He was the guy. He couldn't win the big seat for himself, but if anyone else wanted to hold office, they had to toe the line that Brian set. By the way, the voice you just heard is Michael Kazin. He's the author of several books, including one on Brian and the recent What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. He teaches at Georgetown University. Now, this was an age of optimism, post-millennialism, when most Americans thought the world was getting better and better, that progress was being made. We could legislate our way to a brighter future. And Brian was one of those guys. Wilson needed his endorsement to win. And he convinces Brian that he's basically on his Brian's side uh, in 1912. And so Brian speaks for him uh, all over the country in 1912 and in 1916 when he runs for re-election. Brian endorses Wilson for president and Wilson wins, beating Teddy Roosevelt, by the way. 
Wilson makes him Secretary of State, the person in the cabinet concerned with foreign affairs, as a way to tip his hat to one of the biggest names in the Democratic Party. And it happens even now. You know, Hillary Clinton was, of course, Secretary of State under Obama, and that was a tradition in a way. Uh, uh, often the Secretary of State becomes you know, your former rival, or at least of another very powerful figure in the party. Wilson's administration kept with the spirit of post-millennialism. A reduced tariff, new antitrust laws, eight-hour workdays for railroad employees, and the Federal Reserve System. On the state level, Democrats banned child labor in textile mills, required schooling for kids, food protections, all good things. Well, all good things to help white people. Let's remember, they were still the party of Jim Crow. Wilson and Bryan were allies. But then, World War I, they began to differ. 1915, the Germans' uh, U-boat sinks Lusitania, this British passenger ship. Over a thousand people die. Over 128 of the passengers were Americans who died. Now, there's this big decision to make, right? Bryan spent all these years making peace treaties with other countries setting up this system where nations agreed to a cooling-off period. They couldn't go to war without first spending a year thinking it over. I did an episode on this a few weeks ago. He did not want war. But the sinking of the Lusitania made the war much harder to ignore. The sinking of Lusitania in May 1915 was a was it an episode like 9-11. Everyone remembered where they were when they heard about this. And, and it helped to turn American opinion from being pretty strictly neutral for the most part to be, you know, edging towards supporting the British and the French in the war as opposed to ever supporting the Germans. It's worth noting that some people actually dispute this claim. Lusitania sank two years before we got involved. But opinions were changing. The national desire to keep troops out of the fray subsided. Despite all that work to stay out of the war, it was becoming harder to do so. Brian thought that the Germans, of course, had not, should have never have, have done this, but he thought there were probably uh, arms aboard the ship. Passenger ships were not supposed to carry weapons and ammunition, but the British sometimes hid them on boats carrying civilians in order to get them through. Obviously, a big no-no, endangering the lives of non-combatants. Families, people on vacation, the British broke the rules and civilians paid for it when the Germans called their bluff. Brian reserved some of the blame for England. And also, Brian felt that, that the British, by putting a, a blockade on the North Sea, were causing the lives of many German citizens, which they were. And so he thought basically both sides in the war were pretty much equally guilty, uh, equally at fault for this terrible war. And the U.S. should stay as neutral as possible. Brian wanted to keep the United States out. Even today, it's hard to say what the purpose of the war was. What cause were we fighting for? Why risk the lives of hundreds of thousands for an opaque mission? Wilson promised to keep the U.S. out of the conflict as he campaigned for re-election in 1916. Brian gave speeches saying that the Democrats were the team to do just that, even as Wilson doubled the size of our standing army. Now, Teddy Roosevelt and other Republicans called for the U.S. to join the fray, spreading anti-German rhetoric as they went. Wilson won in one of the closest elections in American history, 
And just a month after his second inauguration, We stand firm in armed neutrality. Wilson goes before Congress, and the U.S. is at war, which puts Bryan in a difficult position. He's been publicly against this, as have many Americans. So, Bryan resigns, quits his job, much to the chagrin of his wife and advisors. And attitudes toward the conflict started to change once we were in it. Some public Christians declared that this war was for righteousness. Others said it would put an end to war itself. Regardless of their intentions, it was this conflict that turned the American people from hopeful of the future to seeing the end of the world around every corner. I'll continue the story after these messages. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back. I have been so excited to do this episode because this is where we start taking all of the pieces we've discussed this season and putting them together. Okay, so Billy Sunday was bombastic. A former professional baseball player, a fiery preacher, he's said to have preached to over 100 million people. Some saw him as D.L. Moody's successor. Now, that's up for grabs because he was really popular, but also political in a way that Moody never was. Sunday was a premillennialist, meaning he thought that the trajectory of history was leading toward disaster, a cataclysm in the end times. By 1917, he stumped for the war. Christianity and patriotism are synonymous terms, and hell and traitors are synonymous. Sunday did his best to link the battle to the duty of Christian people. Get out there and fight. He also stirred up anti-German sentiment. Remember, the Germans were one of our opponents in World War I. If you turn hell upside down, you will find Made in Germany stamped on the bottom. Those are tough words. But listen, we've been talking about Germany for a while, right? Certain Americans were upset about them already. Now, rewind your mind back a few episodes. If you'll recall, the United States saw an increase in German immigrants in the late 1800s. And with them came modernist theology, the scourge of evangelicalism, that branch of study that argued that, eh, maybe Jesus wasn't God, and that whole sections of the Bible could be ignored, but also nudged Christians to study the history and context around Scripture. This liberal theology was Billy Sunday's 
nemesis. And now we were at war with the very country that produced this doctrine. Is it any wonder anti-German sentiment was so high? And Sunday wasn't the only one. William Bell Riley, the guy that some argue deserves the title Mr. Fundamentalist over William Jennings Bryan, who we'll spend some time on soon, blamed that same liberal German theology for the brutality of World War I. And also, one could argue that World War I was a tipping point in Russian history, which pushed the Russian people over the edge to the point that they killed their own king and communism took hold. Why? Because of Germany, home of liberal theology. This was the start of the battle between liberal and conservative Christians. So far, they've been pretty cordial, wary of each other, but cordial. All of that was going to change. Some of it boiled down to two different ways of seeing the war. The liberals, the modernists, saw this as the war to end all wars, which I always thought stood for like the biggest, baddest version of something. These are the tacos to end all tacos. This is the nap to end all naps. No, they literally thought this was the last war. The phrase comes from writer H.G. Wells. This is already the vastest war in history. It is a war not of nations, but of mankind. It is a war to exercise a world madness and end an age. For this is now a war for peace. It aims straight at disarmament. It aims at a settlement that shall stop the sort of thing forever. Every soldier who fights against Germany is now a crusader against war. This is the greatest of all wars. It is not just another war. It is the last war. Did you catch it? Wells predicted that this was the final time we humans would duke it out on the field of battle. An optimistic vision. That was one modernist view. Now, conservatives also supported the war once we were in it, because it was patriotic and showed that the world was not getting progressively better, that human history ultimately leads to chaos, not progress. Liberals supported the war because they believed it was paving the way for global democracy. Now, if you're a theological liberal, Hello? And you think the war has a higher purpose, This is going to put a stop to bloodshed and bring about democracy the world over. But you see conservatives poo-pooing that notion, Poo-poo. What are you going to think? Me? I'd say the conservatives are being subversive and unpatriotic. They were split. They agreed that the war was the right move, but they battled each other about the meaning of it. Was it a sign of the end times or of things getting better? There is a straight line between this and the creation of Christian fundamentalism. Because this is where we see the first shots fired in the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And guess what? The first volley, the shot that rang out when they saw the whites of their eyes, came from the liberals. Beginning in 1917, theologians Shaler Matthews and Shirley Jackson Case wrote extensively about the dangers they perceived in premillennialism. This is an item written by Shirley Jackson Case. If the world cannot be improved, but is destined to grow constantly worse, 
and the more rapid the deterioration, the better. Since Christ's coming will thereby be hastened, why should one bother about the futile work of social betterment or attempt to establish more ideal forms of government? He went on from there, and this is where he really throws some shade. Hence, if Germany can give us a worse world than we now have, and who believes that our capacity for devising horrors is yet exhausted, the premillennialist might well want Germany to win. A Teutonic victory ought to bring us nearer to the end of the present world. I'd say that constitutes shots fired. That is really he- heavy. It's <laughs> really <laughs> heavy. Does that make sense? The, this voice you're hearing is my brother, Nick Stern. He sometimes helps me flesh out these episodes. Yeah, I think we need to go back over that again, because I think what you're saying is it's the liberals who started the battle between fundamentalism and modernism. I mean, yes. I mean, it had been brewing for a while. I mean, if you remember, there was that famous meeting in like 1868 in evangelicalism where they had seen this coming. So decades earlier, they knew this was coming. But... Yeah, this is where the battle really starts. So everybody starts pointing fingers, and it's all over Germany in World War I, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's, that's where it starts. It's about the war. And we've got these two sides of our pendulum that you've been talking about back and forth, right? So, so the premillennialists are on this one side, and the liberals see this negative view of history that the premillennialists had, right? Yeah. And the, and the liberals said that the premillennialists wanted Germany to win because that would hasten the end of the world. Why? Why? Well, why would anybody want that? I don't know. People want really dark things, but that's just part of it, because this storm had been growing for a long time. As I said, this was like in the middle of the Great Reversal, so conservatives were kind of backing out of doing social works, because those social works were tied up... Making the world better. Well, they were making the world better, but they were tied up with liberal theology. So if you believe that liberal theology is sending people to hell uh, because it's, a, it, it's creating this religion that is minus salvation, it's minus Christ dying on the cross, if you believe that, that this, this belief system is sending people to hell like the proto-fundamentalists would, you wanted to distance yourself from that, right? So if the liberals are, are doing that, and they're also coupling that with good works— you're going to back away from the good works department as well. So you get more extreme, so I'll get more extreme. You'd, yeah, there's definitely mm-hmm. some of that. Usually, mutually assured destruction. So Billy Sunday has this quote that I want you to read, because you read the other Billy Sunday quotes. Some people are trying to make a religion out of social service with Jesus Christ left out. We've had enough of this godless social service nonsense. Ooh, that's tough stuff. Yeah, but you notice that he's not saying we're against all social service. We're against godless social service, right? That's true, but I think in that kind of a rhetoric tone, like people might just lose that. Yeah, well, of course, because we're bad at context. We're humans. (laughs) So I can see how people would rebel against the liberal theology because they're seeing it as kind of empty and missing this key part of salvation through Christ alone. But there's also another little nugget there. So you'd say that the Bible is the standard for all morality in the world. And so if people start removing sections of that Bible because they don't like it, it doesn't conform to their lifestyle, whatever, uh, then they can say, cut out whatever sins they don't like, right? Then morality in modernism becomes this kind of nebulous thing that's looking after social good, but also is not interested in individual sins, Uh, Which means, of course, then, that maybe 
conservatives would say liberals caused or brought about the brutality of World War I because they'd removed morality, individual responsibility and morality. Without any moral compass, of course, what's to stop you from brutalizing whoever you want? Right. Which, again, is it's a big leap of logic. <laughs> <laughs> but it's there, you know, it's uh, it's there. They The conservatives would see this loss of morality, uh, example being World War I, as, as being uh, the fault of German uh-huh, liberal theology. So basically they both win because they can blame each other for everything. Yeah, it doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? <laughs> no, gosh, this has never happened before or since. Now, just one little one more twist of the knife. Uh, there were guys like Woodrow Wilson, again, president of the United States, who wanted to create like a group of countries that could get together and stop these big, nasty wars from happening before they got out of control. And so they do that by proposing the League of Nations. I'm guessing some people didn't like that. And that would be correct. <laughs> because as we've said and earlier in this season, premillennialists saw history as trending downwards and leading to a one-world government. Such as, I don't know, a League of Nations, perhaps? <laughs> maybe, just maybe a League yeah, of Nations. Yeah, that, that sounds like the sky is on fire to these people. Surely the end of times. Now, of course, you know, we, with the benefit of distance and time, know that the League of Nations was not the, a sign of the end times. It's, but it's kind of like what people thought about with the, the European Union in our lifetime, that that would be a one-world government. So that, that was a, a real fear that some people had. But also beyond that, there was a real shift in the way Americans behaved after the dust settled. And when the war was over, the culture of the United States, I mean, it really changed. Soon women have the right to vote, prohibition is enacted, leaps in technology. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan is at its highest membership ever. And a clear enemy, right? Because Russia is communist. Four million workers in the U.S. are involved in labor strikes. So there's concern that the U.S. might be threatened by communism. And also, right after the war, there were really bad financial times that would, of course, as they always are, get blamed on foreigners. So then the U.S. sets up anti-immigration laws that capes out almost everyone who wasn't from Northern Europe. It's almost hard to fathom the difference between the Victorian era and the Roaring Twenties. George Marsden, the guy who wrote the book on fundamentalism I've been talking about this season, described it to me like a catalyst in chemistry. It sparked rapid adjustments all over society. World War I made America a lot more cosmopolitan. Suddenly people are going to Europe, so how do you keep them down the farm once they've seen Gay Paris? And uh, morals are changing. You're beginning to get the growing 20s and, and, and the flappers and new dance crazes and short dresses and all sorts of things that were alarming to people who've been, who grew up in the Victorian era. So the fundamentalist movement plays into that as uh, provide, offering a, a religious account of what's wrong. Things are getting worse and worse. Get ready for Jesus preach conversion, stop the, the liberals from taking over churches and, and subverting the, the true gospel. So the, the fundamentalist religious emphasis is a, is a way of uh, sort of meeting the, the cultural crisis. And we'll get into some of the specific battles between modernists and fundamentalists in future episodes. As we do, look for changing goals between modernism and fundamentalism. The modernists wanted to spread this idea of civilization. Fundamentalists targeted saving souls. 
And fundamentalists wouldn't give up on taking part in broader society just yet. They had some key battles left to fight in public, including, can you guess? Well, judging from what the rest of your season is about, I'm thinking evolution. Yeah. I mean, I did travel down to Tennessee. <laughs> to oh, is that go, where you went? To go report on, on the Scopes Monkey trial, which, God willing, we'll get to soon. Evolution, uh, bringing us full circle back to William Jennings Bryan, who was now the former Secretary of State for the U.S. He quit his job in protest of the war. And you might think it was like the end of his career, but no. Here is Michael Kazin once more. And then he, be then he becomes... Um you know, a defender of the fundamentalist faith, uh, so to speak, really around World War One. It wasn't yet called fundamentalism. The term wasn't coined until 1920. But this is where Brian makes the adjustment in that direction. When he began to believe that uh, one of the reasons why the world had descended into this really awful war was because people had moved away from God. People had moved away from the Bible. People moved away from, and were beginning to take their inspiration from secular philosophers like Nietzsche, for example. Nietzsche being German. Not a small fact in the days right after the war. You know, Darwinism is, is becoming more and more popular in colleges and, uh, and in teaching of science more generally in the early 20th century. And, and so he sees Darwinism as a direct threat to uh, young people uh, imbibing the Christian religion and faith of their, of their parents. His emphasis changes. Now, we'll study that more in future episodes as well, because that may not sound like a threat. But like a lot of topics this season, we've seen how the kernel of an idea can become a whole philosophy for some people. Brian's fears about Darwinism weren't so much about the science. Now remember, he was fine with people believing in evolution. What bothered him, and what would soon bother the burgeoning fundamentalist movement, was how it impacted the way we treat each other social Darwinism, this thing that Teddy Roosevelt was for that allowed a dominant culture to do whatever they wanted to do in order to bring about a specific vision of civilization. An idea that said that if the ideal of evolution is that only the fittest survive, what do we do with people we deem imperfect? That was the fear of these future fundamentalists. Would social Darwinism give some people license to do truly wicked things, like they did in World War I? The answer, by the way, was yes, and we'll get there soon. We'd just finished a brutal war, one so nasty that it caused many people to change from post-millennial to pre-millennial. Americans would start viewing the trajectory of history as trending downward, and the heat was about to be turned up in the battle between fundamentalism and modernism. Now, we Americans have a really limited view of our history. It makes us look back at the early 1900s as quaint and genteel, simple. And guess what? They weren't. There was so much going on. No wonder they worried that the end times were near. All sides went looking for somebody to blame. I wanted to cover the war because the brutality of it is one of the catalysts that made Americans become premillennialist. Men came home with stories of gore from the most devastating battles in history to that point. How do you see that and believe the world is getting better? Now remember, both sides agreed that the war should be fought. 
but then they blamed each other for the cultural outcomes. William Jennings Bryan and his fundamentalist friends saw the enemy as social Darwinism, spawned by liberal theology. And they rallied to stop the teaching of evolution in hopes that nothing like this would ever happen again. Liberals witnessed the horrors and blamed conservatives for looking forward to the end times instead of advocating for a brighter future. And thus, what had been a relatively civil theological disagreement erupted into a fight. Special thanks to all the voices we heard today. Michael Kazin is a writer and professor. His most recent book is What It Took to Win, which is a history of the Democratic Party. George Marson's book is Fundamentalism and American Culture, which is newly updated. Thanks also to my brother Nick Steren for his vocal help. Thanks to the staff of the National Museum of Military Vehicles in Dubois, Wyoming. Again, all the opinions expressed in this episode are mine and not theirs. And if you're ever near Yellowstone or Grand Teton National Parks, it's well worth the day trip to go see it. And I guess that's my opinion too, not theirs, I don't know. Please rate and review the show in your podcasting app. And tell a friend, Truce is listener supported. And it takes a lot of time to make this all happen. There's no other show like this one. Now, when was the last time you heard a discussion of how World War I shaped American fundamentalism? I'm trying to do something unique, telling engrossing, immersive stories that make us think and challenge us to both love God and love our neighbors. If you want to be a part of this wild, creative project, consider giving $10 a month through patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Or go to the website and learn how to write a check or Venmo me. I'd love to do this show full-time. It would be so great. Imagine what I could do with more sleep and without a full-time job slowing me down. That's trucepodcast.com slash donate. And if you give via Patreon, you'll hear a special bonus episode with some more things I learned at the Military Vehicle Museum. The next few episodes are really heating up. I'm looking forward to sharing them with you. Subscribe to the show so you get every new episode as it's released. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. And God willing, we'll talk again soon. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.